Hi there, welcome back to Room in the Margins, where we talk about empathy and lived experience and all the ways we can leave room to see each other as human beings. Um, I recorded this episode with Tanya Beat uh, about a week after the video of George Floyd's murder was released and around the time of Breonna Taylor's murder by police and months after Ahmaud Arbery was stalked and killed by white men and around the time Nina Pop, Tony McDade, Raya Milton, and Dominique Fells were killed, um, black trans women. So here we are again uh, battling with our nation's legacy of racial injustice and white supremacy. So I want to read something from the writer Trey Johnson uh, that he put in his piece uh, in the Washington Post entitled, When Black People Are in Pain, White People Join Book Clubs. And Trey wrote something that stayed with me as I strapped into this emotional roller coaster that comes with whiteness in the face of racial injustice. And he said, the confusing, perhaps contradictory advice on what white people should do probably feels maddening. To be told to step up, no step back, read, no listen, protest, don't protest, check on black friends, leave us alone, ask for help or do the work, it probably feels contradictory at times. And yet, you'll figure it out. Black people have been similarly exhausted making the case for jobs, freedom, happiness, justice, equality, and the like. It's made us dizzy, but we've managed to find the means to walk straight." End quote. And my guest today, Tanya Beat, uh, Tanya and I spent a good amount of time talking through our commitments for the long term around anti-racism in our jobs, among our families, and in our communities. She's the director of both the Commission on the Status of Women and LGBTQ Commission for the County of San Mateo. And what has two thumbs and didn't know what a county commissioner was, well, you can't see me, but it's me. I've got my thumbs up. Uh, so much to learn about local government. And Tanya is also leading a virtual conference called Rise 2020 for Women of Color in August that will focus on connecting women to resources, mental health and wellness, uh, and running for office so that we can make significant change. There will also be some youth development uh, presentation of their projects because we need to look to the youth, listen, learn. The link to the conference is on the blog and in the show notes, Rise 2020. Here's Tanya Beat. I work for the County of San Mateo, which is right south of San Francisco on the peninsula. Um, and I have the privilege of working with a lot of commissions. So I work with our LGBTQ commission. I work with our commission on the status of women. And um, also not as much with the Domestic Violence Council, but I also help that group as well. So I work with a lot of different nonprofit organizations as well as community members who are commissioners who want to work on those issues that those groups represent. I mean, the last couple of months, shelter in place has been like, oh, everyone's, everyone's in this. We have to watch what we do. We're all complying to what we need to do in the name of safety. And there's still a group of people disproportionately being impacted because they have to, right. <laughs> they have to, no they're, other they're choice. serving in jobs. Yeah. And they're having to, to make money for their families because they don't have childcare. They don't have two adults that can handle 
the kids all together and teach them and all of that. And so it's been a, a huge issue that I've been constantly asking, like, what are we doing about these communities? May I please see your data around the LGBTQ community and how COVID's infecting them? And then I get told, well, we don't have it. And I'm like, what, why? Because they're not collecting sexual orientation and gender identification questions, which is to me standard, I guess. I mean, right. I live in the Bay Area. I live, <laughs> I live next to San Francisco and people can't tell me how this whole pandemic is really impacting the LGBTQ community, which by the way, I'm part of. This queer lesbian is like, hey, I'm privileged to be okay, but I have some transgender sisters of color that are, you know, dying. Why does it matter to you so deeply to work with underrepresented populations? Well, Kate, I think you're from that northern Midwest area that I would never want to be from. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Only because of the cold climate. Shade. Uh, grew up in Kansas. I have this agricultural part of my my family, which is my father's side. And for life of me, I don't know how this happened, but he met my mother and they decided to get married, I guess. Um, but my mother, her parents, my grandparents are from Mexico and they came over with a Bracero program. And even growing up, they never spoke English. So I never really had you know, a language with them, except that they were my grandparents and they taught me a lot of different things. Growing up in that Midwest area, um, I don't remember anything besides it being a very like white, all white community, very Catholic, um, with a smattering of like brown in there. And what I mean by that is going to visit my mom's side of the family in Oklahoma from that childhood, and then we moved to the East Coast, to Pennsylvania, all white again, but suburbia. Um, I just uh, was in this bubble uh, of all whiteness. I never really quite understood my privilege until I went to college in the city of Pittsburgh, um, a very urban environment in the early 90s. I was what, like around the time that you were born? <laughs> what year were you born again? I'm going to lace in a track from the 90s just as we talk <laughs> about this this era. I was born at 84. Thank you very much. All right. So you were just, you were like six. Yeah. Just a little baby. <laughs> I, I like to mention this because I'm sure you remember the 90s in a very specific way. Well, I remember the 90s as being like, I go to college and I'm like, oh my God, they're like, all these different kinds of people here, how exciting, you, you know, you get a new start. But yet I was still in a very white world, um, being able to look into a very brown or black world. And that was the first time that I sort of felt like, oh, seeing African-Americans or the black community, they're very proud and very strong. Did you have a connection to your uh, Mexican-American identity uh, growing up or because you talk a lot about how uh, feeling like you you had privilege but um, I also wonder if you had instances of feeling different um, or not 
kind of fitting in with that broader white culture? I always felt like I fit in and that I was uh, just part of the community. I think the times where I didn't feel like I fit in um, were probably because of my Mexican side of the family. I mean, my name's Tanya Bead. I'm lighter skinned. I am a white woman, pretty much. You know, I, unless I say otherwise, people would never know that I'm half Mexican. Mm. And I'll never forget a wedding we went to on the Mexican side of the family in Chicago. And I was only maybe five or six. And my Mexican uncle brought me over to his group of Latino friends and asked me what I thought I was. And I didn't understand. And he's mm -hmm. like, well, what are you? And I told him, you know, half Mexican, half white. And all of his friends started laughing at me. Mm. And I was just like, and it was a very short period of time. And I just recognized that I didn't belong in either world. I loved my mother's side of the family and I loved my father's side of the family. Um, but I, I just didn't fit. So I think what's, funny is that on the East Coast, you know, our, our, the U.S. is very interesting with its Latino communities and Pittsburgh was very Central American, lots of South Americans, lots of Central Americans. And then I moved to Connecticut and it was all the Caribbean Latinos, mainly uh, Puerto Rican mm -hmm. and Dominican. And that was where I actually embraced my Latino heritage mm. uh, and appreciation for my Mexican sort of background and wanting to learn more because I was learning so much from the Puerto Rican community. I think that was where I felt like I first belonged because they just totally embraced me and took me in um, and made me one of their own. I'll never forget that. Um, and the appreciation for um, la lengua uh, because I couldn't understand a damn thing that they were saying in their Spanish because I learned more of a classroom Spanish. Um, so it was just one of those things that, of course, they made fun of me about, but I totally loved and appreciated um, that community. First time I had a, uh, in Connecticut, uh, two of my lovers were brown, one Latina and one African-European. Um, an African-American roommate. I mean, it was just like Connecticut was like the diversity that I'd always wanted and yearned for. And I felt that belonging. And then, so of course we have to consider like the intersection of uh, your kind of queerness along the way too. And like, when does that begin to sort of form in your identity? I've always identified as being a lesbian but didn't fully understand that until I was probably my, probably when I went to college. So those iconic television shows like Charlie's Angels, <laughs> Bionic Woman, um, I love those shows. And then like Dukes of Hazard, my God, I love that show, but I look <laughs> back and I'm just like, what the hell? Um, to, to sort of see uh, 
what I loved and what I loved about them and knew that, you know, well, I had crushes on these female leads and the men leads that I loved, I wanted to be them. Well, what I mean by that is being able to say, man, I really, I have a big crush on that woman um, or my best friend, but I also have a crush on this guy over here too. Mm. Um, I really need to focus on the guy because that's what everyone tells me and asks me, like, Mm. do you have a boyfriend? Do you have, you know, who do you like, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So being able to know the correct answer. Oh, that's real. I mean, I'm a late bloomer by every stretch of the word. So (laughs) I think I was very much playing into what people wanted to hear or what I thought they wanted to hear um, without really having even a connection to sexuality until much later in life. So I think for me, it was either something in me that was looking out and knew that I needed to like protect myself by not even going there uh, until I could get uh, A, out of the 90s, B, out of Michigan, uh, or C, uh, find these pocket communities where that would be embraced. Like, I just think I don't have those necessarily, those early memories uh, in response to your question because I think I was deliberately like oblivious. And I think that's a very, very much so in looking back on it, like defense mechanism uh, zone for me. Um, So even if I thought, oh, I'm like, I'm really crushing on that guy over there or I have a crush on this, uh, this woman, I don't know that I would have been able to fully form that idea because I wouldn't let myself go there. So that's like a whole lot to unpack there. But the, what I feel like I share with you is like, just that deep knowing of I am different from what I'm seeing around me. And I feel like the things that people are talking about in terms of like love songs or even like crushes was like, I couldn't access that. So I was kind of like, Oh, maybe that's not for me. And I felt very uh, unsure of what to do with that. Well, it's like, it, it, it reminds me of like, what's your safety net growing up it mm. is really observing how your friends and family react to something that's different. Mm-hmm. It could be anything, right? Getting pregnant. That was like the big scary thing. You better not get pregnant or else. It's like, that was the biggest sin. Meanwhile, I'm like growing up in the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't even mentioned in my household about safe sex because we were not supposed to have sex. So why even talk about it? Mm -hmm. So I think it was college for me as well that started to open up some of those horizons of how the rest of the world looks. Um, But for you, how did that start to inform? I know you said you've stumbled into what you're doing, but like take me from college, Tanya, to like what you thought you wanted to do in the world. I joined AmeriCorps National Service um, back in 1995, I think in the second year that it was enacted. And it literally changed my life. It gave me direction. 
it helped me develop purpose and it was all about serving the community so that's what changed my life and what happened that was in the mid 90s i got a job teaching adult literacy at goodwill industries i didn't even know that goodwill industries had this huge umbrella of programs but it also taught me that you must educate yourself because um, at that time i'm I'm teaching adult literacy. All of my clients in the day and in the evening are welfare recipients, really. What also sort of shaped me is the impression of the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm. And I'll never forget the day he was acquitted because everyone was watching the TV. It's like no classes. <laughs> and there were cheers. Um, because the majority of our clients were African-American women. And I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what, I was like, what? And I look back and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, there were cheers, of course. Um, and so looking at uh, equity and social justice, that's probably one of the first times I was like, I need to do more, but I'm not quite sure what that looks like. And so, through that AmeriCorps work, that's what brought me to Bridgeport and continuing with education, specifically in the Puerto Rican community, looking at mentoring and tutoring, how, um, how a lot of uh, families don't necessarily have the privileges that I grew up in. And so to, to be able to provide opportunity and access was huge. Um, and it was not about me coming into doing that. It was about helping the community do that for itself. And that's mm -hmm. where I first learned that. It always takes me back to being a woman. And I do believe that women are the key to changing this world. I think that's the hardest piece of my identity that I still struggle with is being a cis woman and still having to struggle I struggle harder as a woman than I do as a lesbian. Hmm. And I don't know if you can relate to this in looking at how I'm treated uh, by men when I'm the only woman in the room, um, how I'm treated in regards to the value of what I earn, how I'm treated by my family, and the role I'm supposed to fulfill um, and treated in what I consider to be representation or lack of it in so many different arenas. I look at that female identity and be able to say, well, from here, where can we go? Like if women ruled the world, how would it be different? And that's the, that's what keeps me going in the work that I do. How are you seeing that at the local level from like women's empowerment and particularly women of color? Um, what are some of the things that you're working on right now that um, advance that goal? Even before COVID-19, you know, to provide uh, an environment for women to come together to talk about the issues that are important to them, to exchange resources and information and to be inspired by other women has been a fantastic avenue to take. 
And so the conference that I'm working on, it's called Rise 2020, and it's a women's leadership conference. We had to cancel it because of COVID-19 in March. And now it's going to be a virtual week-long conference with a variety of different issues and a, and a focus and a pivot on COVID-19 and how this pandemic has impacted women. And it has significantly impacted women. However, locally, we're going to look at the corporate arena, how women in leadership positions, and not even leadership positions, but women in the corporate world are managing how um, to be promoted, how to get gain that equity in their corporate jobs. We're also looking in academia and nonprofits to sort of see how women there are doing that. Um, we're looking at grassroots leaders and the women leading our nonprofits here in this local area to sort of see how they're still um, serving their audiences, but also managing how to do this virtually. Um, we're looking at women in mental health and wellness. I mean, these are all topics we had even before COVID-19. It just so happens that this COVID-19 is totally emphasizing these issues. So we're looking, of course, at youth leadership, near and dear to my heart, because I do believe that looking at our youth leaders, we can learn a lot from them and adjust what we're doing now based on what they're doing. Mm. So our youth advocates are going to be presenting what their projects have been um, and how they see advocacy now. And lastly, we're looking at our elected representatives. So women in those elected positions here locally, sort of seeing where their vision is going, but how they also got there um, because we need them, but we need more women to be able to run for office. So I asked some of our, our elected officials, you know, how do more women, how can more women get involved and run for office? And they're like, you know what? Their husbands need to take care of their families at home. And they need to be able to financially secure that person so that they can run. And so what I'm hearing is a lot more men run for office because they're financially stable. Their wives are taking care of their kids at home. And so that they don't, they have the time and the freedom and the privilege to run for office. Well, they're not representing me. <laughs> How can I help support the woman who has, happens to have a family and I know would be a great representative for me? So that's the conversation that we're having about childcare and affordable childcare and schools and being able to look at equity and how women are being paid um, and being able to have more men declare themselves feminists. We need more men to help us and to see the value of how women participating will actually significantly help them as well. That sounds amazing, Tanya. I'm I'm so looking forward to it. Like we need more conversation that's directed really to the root issues too. I think it's uh, interesting for me to hear, like it's it's obvious to me that we have not, uh, we have the a problem with childcare in general, but like the, the, the tentacles of that and what that can mean for who can hold power and who can be uh, in government is, 
um, yeah, it's making me really consider that. Um, so I'm glad that you're having some more conversations around that. Um, I wanted to ask about, so for folks that want to, that have an interest in getting to know local government more, uh, I'm not sure I could tell you what a commissioner does, but what would, what would someone reach out to their county commissioner about? Really, commissioners are volunteers in the community. Our county board of supervisors have created commissions because they're not experts in everything and they need advice from experts. And so those commissions um, are seen as the experts in the field and community members, right? So that's one form to do it. Um, another way to be involved is to simply learn how your local government works. Do you live, you know, in an unincorporated area? Do you have a, a municipality? Like, do you have a city, a city council? If you don't know those things, um, then ask questions. Look up your town name and sort of see what pops up and start from there. But with commissions here in, the, in San Mateo County, um, we're there to hear from people, sort of ask what they're doing. Um, I'm very proud, like I mentioned June at the very beginning of this because it's Pride Month, boop, boop, Pride. And at the same time, all of this, um, all the tragedies have been happening with uh, black people being killed. It's been a really heavy time. Um, and so with that heaviness, I look at the commission and the work that we've done with other groups to be able to put on a pride event, to be able to say we honor the activism of uh, Stonewall 50 years ago and the Compton cafeteria riots here in the East Bay um, because we wanna be here without them. And that's why we celebrate not to dishonor what's happening now, but to actually honor it. Mm -hmm. for the lives of LGBTQ folks. Um, and we still have so much work to do, but to be able to get that sparkle, to be able to get the sequins, the rainbow, mm -hmm. the joy, the laughter, the love is what sustains us in the fight. And so um, I think that's what's important to be able to recognize is you have to continue to fight in so many different ways and how you feel like you can. But if you just don't know how, try to learn something new. So I also look at my position here at the county and I'm still reflecting on my role in the work I do and the community that I'm serving. And I'm still trying to figure out how do I use this role this position of power that I'm putting that lens on. Other people may say you have no power at all and that's fine, but I'm choosing to say the position I'm in is a position of power because it is. And how can I put that power towards something around change that's significant? I should have given you a heads up before this, but Oh no. Where are you I finding joy? Squeezing puppies, you know, whatever it is. Puppies? Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah. Well, 
the other day at the Pride virtual dance party and I heard Tina Marie. I was like, my God, I haven't heard of her in so long. So it makes me want to go back to listen to some early 90s R&B or late 80s, I think. I don't know. I'm getting too old. I barely remember some of that stuff. Let's do it again. Yes, let's. Next time with cocktails. <laughs>